Hello, and welcome to this speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast, featuring everything you need to know about the history of the Hellbenders, all in under 30 minutes, give or take. I'm Paul Bishop. My compadre Richard Prosh and I co-host the full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, but usually ride solo for these speed listen and bonus installments. Today, however, Rich is joining me in the studio to talk about the history behind Hellbenders, his new three-book Western series from Wolfpack. The first book, appropriately titled Hellbenders, hit the digital shelves at Amazon with a number one listing for new releases in classic American literature, and has been burning up the cyber trail in Kindle and paperback ever since. Reviewers call it an exciting read, a real page-turner, and a solid traditional Western tale. It's great to have you here, Rich, to celebrate Hellbenders and the launch of your new series. Thanks. I'm really excited. And so you should be. It's the culmination of a lot of work, beginning with when you approached me in my position as the acquisitions editor for Wolfpack Publishing about a year ago and told me about Hellbenders. Yeah, I had the kernel of an idea, call it more a sense of direction. And thanks to the faith of you and Mike Bray at Wolfpack, I had the opportunity to unleash the reins and let it thunder forward. The first book in the series, Hellbenders, is available now. Book two, Seven Devils Road, will be published September 15th, and book three, A Killing at Rimrock, will follow on October 6th. Give us a rundown on what the series is all about and what makes it special. Paul, you used the words traditional Western, and that's where I started when I approached the tone and the setting and the characters for the Hellbenders trilogy. You and I are both fans of the old Fawcett Gold Medal, Dell, and Avon original Western paperbacks of the 50s and 60s. We are indeed. And that was a grand time when a lot of Western pulp from the 1920s through the 40s had been reprinted successfully in the new handy paperback format. So publishers like the ones mentioned took a chance on original hard-edged adventures which they assigned to the Western scribes of the day. These stories, along with the many movies and TV shows of that era, introduced all of us to the wonderful and admittedly sometimes cringeworthy tropes of the genre. So, in my mind, a traditional Western has plenty of action, is maybe somewhat dark in tone, though by no means dark by today's standards. There you go. Crickets. (laughs) That's what we get, crickets. Crickets, crickets. That's the audience right there. Yeah. (laughs) So, in my mind, a traditional Western has plenty of action, is somewhat dark in tone, though by no means dark by today's standards. Maybe serious is a better word. And it conforms to the genre format of the characters ending up more or less in the same place mentally and emotionally as where they begin at the start of the story. But there's plenty of running and jumping and shooting. Yeah, but also with a nod toward our current era in that I wanted to add some themes that we're dealing with today. The divisiveness of society, differing ideas of justice, that sort of thing. You mentioned Western genre tropes. Along with the contemporary themes you talked about, are you using some familiar ideas? In a roundabout fashion, yeah, I approached each book with one of Frank Gruber's Western plots in mind. In other words, will it be a ranch story, a stagecoach story, a revenge story? But while I wanted absolutely to offer these ideas in a familiar, comfortable backdrop, I also wanted to present them in a unique way. Okay, having read it, I know the first book's a ranch story. Yes, there was a time when I was reading two or three old Western paperbacks each week, and it seemed like every other one was about some guy who's coming home from the Civil War to find an evil land baron trying to steal his family's ranch. Or there'd be the innocent ingenue being wooed by some creep who coveted her family's land more than he coveted her. Oh, I've had that happen to me twice this week. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a California thing. Anyway, you were saying. I've always wanted to write one of those stories, but one where the female character wasn't a ninny or simply set in place as a gal pal for the hero. And I appreciate that. I was a big fan of boxing fiction. I have a whole collection of boxing fiction. And the one trope I absolutely hate is the girlfriend or wife who expects and demands that the main character, the boxer, stop fighting. Just for once, give me a gal pal who's on his side and wants him to go in there and get the other guy. It just drives me insane. And so the same thing with the ninny of a female character who does exactly what she's not supposed to do. Yeah, they always act like they are willing to just give up their family ranch or betray their father or whatever, betray the hero, just because they're maybe not morally strong enough or something. And that's not attractive to me in a female character. And because it's a plot twist that I just don't like. Yeah, I agree. It's one of those situations. Don't go into the basement in the dark with a candle. Don't go down the stairs. You want to be given something that's different, right? You can take that, but then she gets a bazooka and goes down the stairs. Okay, I'm right there. Go down the stairs. That's what we as writers have to do is to change these tropes around. They're still tropes, but we can always put a different spin on them. And that's what I tried to do because I wanted to write a traditional Western in the spirit of those old paperbacks we love, but I wanted to do something that would have some modern sensibility to it and not be just more of the same old, same old. So tell our listeners about the main characters in the setting. The first book is set in the eastern Rio Grande Valley of Texas in the fall of 1859 during the Cortina Troubles, also known as the Cortina Wars. The main character is Texas Ranger Lynn Jarrett, who is summoned to the region by his uncle, who is also a Texas Ranger, on a special mission to the Sinclair Rancho, an old gold star property that's lost its luster. Old Man Sinclair is a friend of Lynn's Uncle Oscar. Once at the ranch, Lynn meets Sinclair's daughter, Reese, who has a knack for numbers and a knack for guns. And she also has a secret, which may or may not relate to exactly who the hellbenders are and why they're called hellbenders. We also meet the ramrod of the ranch, a fellow named Stick, and eventually a runaway slave named Micah LeMay. Who's the villain of the piece? Paul, as we know, the border of Texas changed as a result of the Mexican-American War. Mexican landowners who owned vast Spanish land grants that dated back generations lost them as the property became part of Texas and the United States overnight. Juan Cortina was one of these individuals, and his troubles with Brownville, Texas are legendary. So, the historical Cortina was a bad guy, but with a legitimate gripe. In some ways... Cortina is a complex character who some people see as a villain and other people see as a patriot. During the past century and a half, he's become a larger-than-life folk hero. Certainly there was a lot of animosity on both sides, and the Cortina troubles often wandered into some pretty gray areas. You know, gray areas can be explored in depth in more lyrical novels, but for a traditional action yarn, I wanted a more straightforward black-and-white villain. So... Rather than use a larger-than-life historical figure like Cortina directly, I've got one of Cortina's lieutenants, the truly evil Cardoza, who's trying to impress and even outdo his boss. And Cardoza's hired lackey is also one of Lynn Jarrett's main foils. That's not to say there aren't some philosophical themes running through Hellbenders. Without giving too much away, the abolition of slavery is a big part of the story, as is justice in general. I'm especially taken with the scene where Reese, who's something of a vigilante herself, 
tells a law and order-oriented Lynn about the feline roots of her philosophy and gets him to join her crusade. Oh yeah, the otter the cat story. Yeah, that's a powerful scene. Do you mind if I read it for our listeners? Not at all. Please go ahead. Reese hugged her arms around herself and looked at the moon for inspiration. When I was 11 years old, she said, we had a cat on the ranch named Otter. He started out as a gray, tiger-striped kitten living in a haystack outside in the livery barn, but soon grew to be a sassy big tom. How'd he come by his name? One day at the Little River, my dad saw him from a distance, lounging on a bank, all stretched out, long and sleek. Like an otter, said Lynn. Like an otter. If he'd have stayed down at the river or gone on to live someplace else, everything would have been fine. But he didn't. He lived on the ranch. He stayed around the livery barn with the other cats. Lynn slipped the rolling paper in his mouth, wetted it, and twisted the ends to hold it tight. Then he struck a match on his boot. Otter was a pet? A pet is precisely what he was not, said Reese. He was wild and ornery. He dominated all the other barn cats, making a fuss, picking fights at all hours of the night. He especially liked to fight with a friendly white tom whose name was Catfish. Finally, Dad decided to take care of Otter, to shoot him. Sounds like Otter asked for it. But I was 11 years old, and you didn't want your dad to kill off the kitty. I did not, even though he was tearing up all the other cats. I caught Dad walking towards the livery with his rifle one morning, and I stopped him. At first, he wouldn't hear me, but I begged him not to hurt Otter. I cried and pleaded. What happened? Dad gave in. He put his arms around me and praised my sense of charity. Her laugh was cold and ironic. He told me he was proud of my gentle heart. Two months later, we had a fresh litter of kittens from Catfish and a gray female. Lynn sucked in the smoke, watched the embers flare. He let her take her time. He had plenty of good ideas where the story was going. I must tell you, Ranger, I love those little kittens. There were four of them, two gray tigers and two were pure white. The mother was a tiger, but she had these two little snowflakes with blue eyes. A rare blend, said Lynn. I love those two white kittens. They were so cute, so innocent. Her voice caught in her throat. One day I went down to the barn with a bottle of milk for them. When they didn't come running out to meet me, you knew something was wrong. I did. She nodded, and Lynn could see her tears in the moonlight. I did, and I looked everywhere. And when you found him, it was too late. And Otter was there, licking the blood on his lips and his feral evil glare in his eyes. He looked so satisfied with himself. Lynn pinched his cigarette between thumb and forefinger. Sure must have been hard for you, gal. It's nature's way sometimes, she shrugged. Toms can be cruel. Then she turned her face up into the moonlight. He killed four more cats, including the other two kittens, before Dad finally put him down. Some cats are just mean to the core. And some people are the same way, said Reese, brushing the tears from her eyes. Do you understand? I'm not sure. If I wouldn't have interfered the first time, if I would have gone ahead and not interfered, Dad would have killed Otter early on. All those other cats would have been saved. People aren't all knowing, said Lynn. We can't foretell the future. My dad could. He knew from experience Otter was a menace. By not killing him when he had the chance, he had a hand in those future tragedies. Maybe. No maybe about it. Let me ask you, what would happen if he never would have shot Otter? I suppose Otter would have lived to be a fat old cat, and he would have killed how many more kittens? She had Lynn there. A man's not a cat, he said. If we let Cardoza and Hornsby go, they'll go on killing. Not today, necessarily. Maybe not tomorrow, but eventually they will, because it's what they know. 
Just otter. It's in their nature. I can't argue with you. Some men can't live without hurting others, without enslaving others. Some men only exist to subjugate other people to their will because it makes them feel powerful, and they enjoy watching other people bend. Lynn saw what she was driving at. And I can't live with it, said Reese. When bad things happen to the other families on the Rio Grande because I failed to act, I won't be able to live with myself. Hellbenders, said Lynn. Then he made a guess. Hellbenders is you. It's you started the group. There is no group, said Reese. There's just me. A few of the horses were restless at the water. It was time to move them on. And maybe you, she said. Will you help me? Lynn thought about the 11-year-old Reese finding her beloved kittens murdered on a sunny Sunday morning. Yes, he said. I'll help you. Will you help me kill him? Yes, he said, flicking his cigarette into the water. I'll help you kill him. Okay. Wow. That scene is based on a real-life discussion I had once with an old farmer about an old barn cat he had. And it reminds us that life in those days was pretty different from what most of us experience today. Let me ask you, how long ago did you have that discussion with that rancher? Oh, it was back when I was in college, when I was a teenager. So years and years ago. Yeah, yeah. No, long I'm time just ago. kidding. <laughs> long, I'm yeah. just long time ago. My point is, we as writers collect these types of stories. I have what I call a writer's treasure chest. And things can sit in that that I've heard or seen or articles that I've kept for years until the right story comes along to put them in. And this was the right book for that story. Oh, yeah, exactly. There's that sense of justice that I talked about earlier. I guess in just about every kind of violent situation, we have that question of what do we do with people who really do live just to hurt other people? We've decided as a society, we can't just go around killing them. But back in the 1800s, when there wasn't so much law around, we didn't have the police forces and the organizations that we have today, or even the way to incarcerate people the way we do today, there were very slim choices often. And I think that's a neat moral dilemma to face. I agree, and it's those things that make a book like this so interesting. Now, the first book is a ranch story, a siege story. Knowing how you write, I'll wager you drew inspiration from your years on a Nebraska farm and your current station on a Missouri acreage. There's a secret room in the book that figures into the plot at one point, which is directly from my childhood when my friends and I had a hideout in a grain closet. And the opening scene where the vaqueros are working cattle really comes from my everyday life now. It wasn't too long ago we had a cow in a squeeze chute similar to the scenario that was described. It wouldn't be an official Six-Gun Justice Speedlisten installment if we didn't recommend a book or movie to accompany the main topic. Did you come across anything interesting while writing Hellbenders? Yes, I'll urge readers interested in the historical background to pick up 50 Miles and a Fight, Major Samuel Peter Heitzelman's Journal of Texas and the Cortina War, edited by Jerry Thompson. Lots of good Texas Ranger history there. Lots of good history on the Cortina Wars, written firsthand by a guy who was there, and edited in such a way that reading his journal entries is almost like a novel of the adventure that the guy had. Sounds good. How about movies? Juan Cortina, played by A. Martinez of Longmire fame, shows up in the 1996 TV movie The Cherokee Kid, starring Sinbad. 
it's a surprising film falling into the not as bad as you might think category. The, sto- <laughs> <laughs> the story has Sinbad running into various characters in the Old West, including James Coburn as Cyrus Bloomington, Gregory Hines as The Undertaker, Ernie Hudson as Nat Love, Burt Reynolds as Otter Bob, the Mountain Man, Don Lewis as Stagecoach Mary, and as I said, A. Martinez as Juan Cortina. What's up next for the Hellbender series? The second book, Seven Devils Road, is a flat-out, balls-to-the-wall run on the Butterfield Overland Trail from Missouri into Arkansas. It's a cover-to-cover stagecoach chase with even more action than the first book. And the third title, A Killing at Rimrock, is a Texas-wide conspiracy story. Lots of challenges ahead for the Hellbenders. Something that surprised and delighted me as I read these three books, each title introduces the reader to additional members of the core team of Lynn and Reese. Was that always your intention? Somewhat, yeah. As a lifelong reader of Marvel Comics, I've loved the team titles, but specifically the Fantastic Four. The first team of Hellbenders could be seen as using that template of three men and a woman, but something I always enjoyed about the comic books is, over time, other superheroes would substitute for the original Fantastic Four members if they had to leave for some reason. That brought a sense of revitalization to the comic whenever it happened. So when I started book two, a new character stepped in, and in book three, two more different characters came on board. I was surprised by how much history you seamlessly slipped into these three books without slowing the action down. You know, the years immediately preceding the Civil War, 1859, 1860, are just incredibly rich with storylines. So darn much happening in America at that time. It's a lot like today in some ways. You had various kinds of conflict all over the place. And as you know, good stories flourish where there is a rich bed of conflict. As a result, all three books happen within a year or so of each other, the fall of 1859 through the summer of 1860. And will readers meet any historical figures face-to-face? I don't want to give anything away, so I'll just say there are a couple different ways writers sometimes approach fiction in a historical setting like this. Sometimes we use history as a backdrop, allowing our characters to react to the famous people or events that appear off-screen. Other times, historical figures step forward and are dramatized to actually fit the fictional setting. I used both avenues in these books. So it's safe to say we'll meet some historical persons. Could be. All right. Playing coy. I like that. What happens when war breaks out between the states? Book three ends in the fall of 1860, just before the election. And I've got a ton of notes and ideas for the eventuality of the Civil War. So if the response to the first three books is solid enough, there is a natural hook at the end of Rimrock to hang three more stories on. At least three more stories. Which sounds like my cue to recommend everyone head over to Amazon and round up a copy of Hellbenders in the inexpensive Kindle ebook edition or in a trade paperback with a beautiful cover. I have to say the covers Wolfpack art director Laura Serafan created to brand the series are just fantastic. I'm really happy with them. They're really exciting and dramatic. And please remember, if you enjoy Hellbenders or any other books in the series, please leave a quick review on Amazon. Seriously, every review helps to get the book into the hands of more readers. Thanks for hanging out with me today, partner. It's been fun, as always. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this bonus speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out our website at sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. 
prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes, Six Gun Justice speed listen installments, and Six Gun Justice conversations are available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Till next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others. And if you want a great read, ride on over to Amazon and rope yourself a copy of Hellbenders. Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride.